Episode 6. Today's conversation is with a Navy SEAL, Eric Davis. Welcome to Men of Abundance, the podcast for those looking to level up their lives by hanging out with some of the greatest leaders and established professionals in our community, living a life of integrity, honor, and the abundance mentality. Prepare to pay it forward with your host, former Army medic turned lifestyle entrepreneur, Wally Carmichael. Aloha, men of abundance. Hey, today we are talking with a Navy SEAL, Eric Davis. And before I introduce him, I want to thank you very much for those of you who have taken the time to go on to Stitcher or iTunes or whatever platform it is that you're listening to this show on and subscribing so that you get every show sent directly to your phone or mobile device or wherever you're listening to this podcast. And for those of you who have left a positive review and wonderful review, I am truly blown away on appreciating the reviews. And right now, last I checked, this podcast is currently being listened to in six different countries. That is amazing to me. It may not be as amazing to some of you, but that is truly amazing to me. And I'm extremely excited to be able to reach men all over the world. So let me introduce Eric to you real quick. Eric Davis served our country as a U.S. Navy SEAL and decorated veteran of the Global War on Terror. Eric has been recognized as one of the premier sniper instructors in the U.S. military and has served as a master training specialist at the SEAL Sniper School in Coronado, California. Since departure from the Navy SEAL teams, Eric has worked in corporate performance, sales, and leadership training, bringing an unprecedented amount of innovation, efficiency, and structure to the domain of business and personal performance. And Eric is the author of Raising Men, Lessons Navy SEALs Learn from Their Training and Taught to Their Sons. And Eric's book, Raising Men, is specifically why I invited him to be on Men of Abundance today. So Eric, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you very much for having me on. Man, it's been a pleasure. I, the first time I heard you on another podcast and then I, I looked up your book and I started looking up some of your information, I just said I got to get this guy on the show because you completely resonate with what Men of Abundance is all about. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, I'm glad uh, we made the connection and hopefully we'll be able to bring some value here. Absolutely. I'm sure we will. And I've got some questions specifically about some of the uh, references that you made in the book, and we'll get right into that. But before we do, tell us a little bit more about you. I went into a brief bio, but uh, tell us a little bit more about you, and uh, let's get a little bit personal. Okay. Yeah. So how the story goes, when I was about you know 15 years old, my, my father was the captain of the sheriff's department where I lived. Six foot three, black hair, olive skin. I got hooked up with all the good genetics, five foot nine, red hair, freckles. Uh, he was he was the bishop of our church. Just you know, everything about him was who I wanted to be. All I knew is to be is I wanted to be like my father. And about fifteen, sixteen, on or about there, he started getting sick. He had diabetes that he'd been dealing with for years, but he got uh, knocked down with what they call clinical depression, which is like depression that all of us feel from time to time. But this one was a comes from a chemical imbalance, and uh, he went through the whole routine of electric shock therapy and. Just all kinds of things that did not just take didn't take him straight out of my life, but um, I knew that his illness was going to continue to have him, you know, be in a situation where he'd be disengaging as things got worse. I was uh, just old enough to recognize the fact that I still needed that mentor, that leader, that that person to be like because you know I didn't want to be like myself. I still needed someone to latch on to, right. but. I was too young, you know, to do it myself, and that thrust me into a world of personal development, self-help, reading every single book, every audio tape, everything there was out there. 
um, you know, looking to fill that gap. And what I found is really, you know, not really a lot of that stuff worked. Um, I started to spiral. Things weren't going well for me. Uh, you know, in hindsight, I recognize that most of that stuff is published and printed just to give you the perception of helping you, um, not really delivering. Uh, so I did the only natural thing to do. I joined the SEAL team so that I can find a source of knowledge of leadership, but, you know, somebody to help, in a way, help raise me, you know, get myself in an environment where that all go well. Um, there I spent 16 years in the Navy. I spent a couple years as a Marine Reconnaissance Corpsman. Um, that's a medic in the Marines version of Special Operations. Uh, went to SEAL training. Uh, actually quit and got out of the Navy. Realized that the first act of being a father, I, I did not want to set an example for my kids of giving up on your dreams. So I went back into the Navy, went back into SEAL training, graduated, spent 10 years in the SEAL teams five of which I spent as a sniper instructor, which is kind of is an oddly long amount of time. But me and a couple other guys had gotten so good at it, you know, we'd put our heads down, studied with Olympic gold medalists, just got really into training and development, you know, that they asked us to stick around and stay for a while to help progress the course because the attrition rate, so many guys were failing. Um, so we were really able to dial that course in by just bringing another level of professionalism and process to the training program. Now, why that's all relevant is when I got out of the military in 2008, it was time to go into the executive world, the civilian world, and I had been training for so long and had such a fundamental knowledge of it that I made the claim to a, a very large financial firm here in California. I told them that, hey, training sales teams, financial advisors, anything like that in performance is just like training a sniper team or a sniper student, um, and they believed me. So that's how I got started, and it turned out it was the same. When you understand the fundamentals of performance, the things that underlie everything else, you can affect any domain of concern. Um, and I went into corporate performance, corporate corporate leadership, um, and the long story medium. A few years ago, I became I ju jumped out of there so that I can produce that I could, so that I could provide everything I was doing to individuals rather than just uh, companies. And I've been a writer uh, ever since. Man, that's pretty impressive and I like you know you mentioned the uh, about the self-development and personal help and all that kind of stuff and I found it to be for the most part very true a lot of the stuff you know kind of tells you why you need to feel good and, and all that kind of stuff but it doesn't really share the how specifically that's what I've personally found and I resonate with that exactly and and I like how you you know you you really took what you learned in the Navy SEALs and you correlate that really well in the book and I want to get into the book, but before we do that, you you mentioned in the book, and I heard you talk about this once before, in reference to one of the things you did most of the time when you're on a team uh, as a SEAL was um, taking care of these pirates. Uh, can you share that story with the uh, with the uh, men of abundance? Oh yeah, no, actually, we uh, yeah, I got gotcha. you. We were pirating uh, ships. So what would happen is, you know, the United Nations embargoes against Iraq, uh, um, you know, would prohibit them from, you know, bringing out weapons or certain goods and, you know, whatever it is that they were shipping out of Iraq. Uh, so what ha what we did is we basically became the United States uh, version of a pirate team, and I, we, me and my platoon, we we took over at, at least twenty plus ships. And, you know, we would either, uh, you know, come from above and swoop in on a helicopter and throw down a, a big fat rope that we'd slide down, which is much like a, a firefighter's pole, and take the ship. Or we'd come from behind very quietly on very small 
uh, what they call ribs, uh, rigid hull inflatable boats, uh, very fast. And we'd uh, literally throw a grappling hook up onto the ship and then scale it and then take it down. And we'd basically render the ship dead in the water and then turn it over to the big Navy. So a bulk of my action, kind of op- actually all of my actionable operational experience really is of pirating ships, black hoods, sneaking onto them and taking them. That seems completely crazy. Basically, you're going into somebody else's house and uh, taking over their their domain. What was your favorite part of doing that? You know, my favorite part actually is a memory of it. Um, so I was a, the platoon sniper, so I would rotate on and off a helicopter where we'd provide uh, overwatch for the team getting on the boat because uh, it's obviously very dangerous. You're climbing up the ship or, 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 or you know roping onto the ship, and you're vulnerable. Your gun's not in your hands. You're dealing with moving your body. Uh, so I would uh, oftentimes be up in the helicopter covering everybody, making sure that they were safe, and if I needed to take somebody out, if they were going to get them, I could do that. Um, but up there, they have what's called a FLIR system, and it's basically like taking thermal imagery and night vision, laying it over on top of each other, and just giving you this amazing nighttime view, because all of our operations were at night under the cover of darkness, so they, they can't see us coming. And when you watch, my, when I would watch my platoon take a ship, it kind of looked like the ship was steaming along just nicely, you know, in the in blacked out and in the dark dark water, but you can see it through this night vision. Um, and then all of a sudden, you'd see something approach it, especially when they approached it by another boat. And you'd see these little dark glowing figures because of the thermal imagery or the night vision depends on what polarization they had it on, mm-hmm. like subdue the ship. And you'd see it crawl up on the ship and then move towards the bridge. And then all of a sudden, you'd see the ship go you know, dead in the water. It would die. And it, I literally would describe it, it looked like a, a cancer would take the ship and just render it, just stop it. And it just it was so amazing to watch. And it's, it's burned into my mind to this day, just these, when I especially, I know, like, I, I'm a fan of SEALs just like anybody else. So I'd watch my platoon in awe as they just take these ships down and render them useless. So raising men, why, why did you go for raising men, even though you have girls? Why did you go with raising men and why did you specifically gear this towards boys? Well... You know, one of the things is when, you know, that story about my dad, you know, getting sick and kind of pulling out of my life a little bit as, as his illness took him, I, I, as I look back, especially now, you know, we're the first generation or I'm, I'm the first generation of parents who've had to bring kids up in this new world, like this technologically driven, hyper competitive world. You know, there wasn't internet or smartphones when I was a kid, so my parents didn't raise me in that situation. So we're the first one. So in a way, almost everybody lost their parents in one, in, in a way, you know, if you think about it this way, meaning that their parents weren't ready to, to bring them into this environment. So I found there was just an entire generation of men who are missing some of this kind of way of, of thinking. And if you look at masculinity today, the problem is, is men bring themselves up to be masculine. And, and that's broke from the get-go because masculinity, by definition, is popular culture's version of what attributes make up a man. And popular culture does not compete. Popular culture does not evolve. Popular culture is always just the opinions and random thoughts of the current set of people on the planet, right? There's no like discourse to it. There's no history. There's no lessons learned. There's no nothing. So men are just taking, getting hammered because, again, a lot of us, a lot of the parents, as this world's changed so fast, we've had to react to it. That got us a little busy and distracted because it's not like you go to college, 
get a 30-year career, collect your pension for the rest of your life. That doesn't work anymore. So as we were gone, I like to say as we were out getting things done, you know, masculinity got redefined by, uh, you know, a bunch of dudes in skinny jeans and beards, which I don't, I like skinny jeans and beards, but it, it just got redefined by a group of people who don't really understand what masculinity is. So I felt that I needed to start with men. And now that I've done it and I've gotten readers response and these shows and different things like that, I'm really, really glad uh, that I did. I completely agree with that. And we're going to get more into that, but you get deeper into what it is to truly be a man and truly be a father and raising men. And one of the things you talk about and you correlate with your dive buddy is when your dive buddy quits. Now, I I went through Special Forces Selection and Assessment. I've watched documentaries and whatnot on BUDS and, and what Navy SEALs go through. And when a Special Forces soldier, or a candidate anyway, quits, they basically go up to the cadre and they voluntarily withdraw. And, you know, they got to go, they put their name on the board and say, I V-dub. And from what I understand in the Navy SEALs, you go ring a bell and you're done, or you go grab one of the one of the cadre and say, I'm done. And you talk about that, but then you talk about how it's different when a father quits. Yeah, I think when you look at... The thing about when a father quits, as soon as I say that, right, or as soon as you say that, everyone thinks, oh, that dad checked out, left his kids and family behind, they don't see him anymore, he lives in another state, doesn't contact them, etc. That, that is definitely quitting all the way, right? That, that, and that happens, unfortunately. Uh, but what I'm really pointing to here when a father quits is when they do it surreptitiously. When they do it without telling anybody, when they do it without the courage to say, I'm out of here, and I'm kind of being hard on them because I want to kind of wake people up here, when fathers quit but stay home, uh, and I've done this myself, right? I'm not one of those guys that writes a book or gets up and talks and says, hey, look at me. I'm one of those guys that say, hey, look at the, the things I've messed up too. So when we quit, it's when we check out. It's when we don't pay attention to our kids, when we don't engage with them. I found myself when I became an entrepreneur and a writer, uh, I was way less attached to my kids than when I was a SEAL because even though I was home every day, I was pretty distracted trying to get things done and make money. You know, like That was a new thing to learn for me. And I remember one time my daughters were asking me to play a game. I think they like playing like 99 cent store all the time in the house, which, you know, it's pretty lame for a 40 year old guy. It's not exactly a fun game for me. So I was kind of ignoring them and then they just went off about their business and they, and they were gone. And I remember thinking, wow, I just taught my two young daughters how to get ignored by a man, accept it, and just leave. And it, it just really hit me. I'm like, man, in the moment I had quit, in the moment I wasn't being their father. I mean, I could have give, I could have told them I was too tired, let's do this later. I could have done anything but ignore them. And I think parents, especially dads with your girls, right? We, we, we were a big source of their confidence. We really got to watch how we are around them. Um, and I, I've kind of taken the belief it's almost better to be around your kids only once a month if you're engaged and active with them during that day than to be there every single day and teach them how to be ignored. I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but I think you get my point. I absolutely get your point. And, you know, being an entrepreneur myself, and I still work full time, I'm retired. I told you a little bit about myself. I'm retired. I did 25 years in the Army and I was gone a lot as well. And I got a six-year-old. I got a 22-year-old who's in the army now. I got a 16-year-old who's really into video games and wants me to get into the, you know, the shooting games and stuff like that with him. And that's his time. That's what he wants to do with me. And then I have a six-year-old, who, as soon as I get home, little guy wants to. We live on the beach, so he wants to go across to the beach or he wants to go to the park or do something. 
So what I've, and then of course I've got this podcast and I've got my other business stuff I've got going on. So I've set up a schedule in my house and I'm, and, and men of abundance, this is something you, you, you know, I want you to pay attention to because so many people say, well, you can't build a business part time. And I'm telling you, I'm doing that. And the way I've done it is I've set a schedule and my family knows my schedule. When I come home, I, you know, I do the, we'll make dinner together or I'll make dinner or we'll sit down, take the kid to the park. Uh, play some, and after dinner we play some games and then when nine o'clock comes everybody knows from nine to eleven dad's at work even though I'm sitting right there and I'm and I'm on the computer I'm working I'm editing podcasts or I'm communicating with people or whatever it is that I have to do they know nine to eleven I'm working and then I'm working during my lunch hour or I'm up four o'clock in the morning and I'm doing an interview at four o'clock in the morning uh, five o'clock in the morning, whatever. So there's time to do this, but you have to set that time for your business. And, and and I say this because in the past, and this is something my wife got on me so many times is, are you really doing this for us? Are you really? Because you're missing out on so much right now. And it, it finally just hit me. And I said, well, and then, you know, other mentors of mine said, here's what I do. Here's what I suggest. Other dads, I got into a lot of podcasts that are dad entrepreneurs, and I learned this stuff. I didn't come up with this stuff by myself. Seems like I should have. It's so simple, right? But I, you know, I learned this stuff, and I set a schedule, and they know my schedule, and they and they respect the schedule, and I respect their time and their schedule. So one other thing I want to talk about, and it's kind of on the same subject about quitting, and I loved what you did with this, and this resonates with a lot of people because I've been married for 24 years. In the military specifically, and you know, everywhere else, of course, there's divorce, and then there's kids involved. And when your dive buddy quits or you separate from your dive buddy, it's important to stay engaged. And you talk about that in the book. Can you share that? Yeah, I was uh, married very young and a young parent, and uh, you know, immaturity, situation, everything like that. You know, I lost my first marriage, um, and it was a wonderful woman. I love her to death to this day. Um, and part of the reason why I'm so fond of her still is because she was with me and we were united uh, in the idea that, you know, the mission, what was the mission with our kids? The mission was to raise happy, healthy kids together. So even though things did not work out, uh, I wasn't able to pull it off. There, that was a failure, a big failure in my life, the, the most tremendous one I've ever experienced, as a matter of fact. Uh, we didn't fail at what our mission was, right? We came together, we put aside all the petty stuff. I, in the book, there's a chapter called Don't Be Effective, Be Right. I mean, don't be right, be effective. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Scratch that one. Yeah. I will. We'll, we'll edit that out. You want to try <laughs> oh, that no, again? Or leave it. That's, <laughs> oh, yeah. just my, that's everyone's natural default, Perfect. right? Perfect. That's right, what I'm talking about. Yeah. Absolutely. It, it's in me too. You got to cl- clean that stuff out. But, anyways, you yeah. know, be. Be effective, not being right, and and that was the thing. We had to put the mission above all other things, and that had us have an extremely successful uh, divorce and and raise kids together. And and she's best friends with my wife. I'm great friends with her husband. We do stuff together all the time, uh, and people need to recognize that it's not it's you know it's so petty how people get, and they always want to be right and they want to argue and win a fight. But what's the purpose of that? Like you need to you need to win the mission and get things done. At the end of the day, it's about the kids. It's not about you. And, and it, even beyond that, beyond what you're talking about there, so many people just fight to be right. And it's not about that. Yeah. And it's also, uh, so I have kind of a unique way of approaching life and, and I'm sure we'll hit it as we go. But it, in a way, it, it, it has to be about mom and dad as well. And here's why. 
Because if we're not living a happy, healthy life, if we have this relationship in our world that tears at us every single day, it's going to mess up our ability to earn a living. It's going to mess up our ability to play, have fun, you know, be help, happy, healthy, productive people. So uh, the reason I bring that up is because a lot of time, yes, it's about the kids and we sacrifice, we put them first. But, you know, if you look around, a lot of times that's not enough for people to do something and sacrifice for somebody else. Right, right. It doesn't always get them going, but if they understand that they need to care for themselves first, usually they'll have the energy to do the things they need for someone else. So, the reason I say that, I just be cautious. For I want to tell people to be cautious to make sure you're still living a good life, so that you can be that example to your kids. Exactly. In the book, I forget what chapter it is, but you mentioned always say yes, and I forget the number, but I read it at one point that the average child hears the word no like I don't know. 80,000 times in their lifetime and what that does to so many kids and I and I pay attention to this I pay attention when I'm at the park with my little guy and you know a parent will be like no get off that no quit jumping no don't do that no you know stop doing that and they're just not giving them the freedom to do the things that they want to do yeah so with the a couple things with the always saying yes is it puts us in a position that if there is a reason to say no we actually have to you know think it through uh, so when I tell my kids no, they know that I've thought it through and that there's good reason. And almost always, if there's time, I'm always going to share the reason with them too so I can teach them and they can learn from me. When parents get in that default of saying no, the problem is we usually are saying no is because we're tired and we don't want to deal with something. Or, you know, we don't want to think it through, which, by the way, is a valid reason to say no. But you're going to need to communicate that to your kids. You're going to have to say, hey, I'm going to, I do this all the time. I'm going to say no right now because I'm tired right now or I'm stressed or I just, I don't feel like thinking it through. So I'm just going to say no because I don't want to deal with it. And my kids will accept that. They'll be like, oh, that's a bummer, but I get it. Dad's tired. He explained that to me. And the reason that's important is because when we're saying no all the time, the kids know we're full of crap. They know that there's no reason that they can't climb on the slide. They know that there's no reason they can't play at their friend's house or whatever the thing is, and you begin to lose trust. And parents are always complaining about their kids not respecting them, but it's because they're not respecting their kids. They're not organizing around their kids' concerns. They're not thinking things through. They're just default saying no because they're being lazy. And that's one of the biggest – you know, you see families – where the parents always saying no and you can see the kid almost get full of hate because they get so frustrated. They don't they don't understand. They're like, "Okay, there's no reason to be saying no. Why are my parents saying no?" And it's really a destructive habit we get into as parents. And you lose a lot of opportunity, too. There's a lot of great things cuz I'm one of those guys that I need to be so incredibly active. This is crazy you would think this about me. But I'm one of those guys that once I'm at home to get me out to go do something, I'm kind of all hermit away a little bit. I have no idea why because I so desperately need to be outdoors and active, right? But so if I start at that spot, like always say yes, it forces me to go through that conversation and make good choices. Yeah, my my little guy, he would much rather be outdoors and active. How how important is the wilderness and outdoors for us and as far as raising our kids? Well, there's a ton of psychology, you know, about the importance of being outdoors and being in nature and what it does to our systems and how it makes us feel better and good. And, and, and I believe in that. And that's true for me. Whether that's true for every single listener, I do not know. Uh, that's what the psychology would say is the case for human beings. But for me, I've used it as a place to break up their atmosphere, to break up their environment. So when our kids are, you know, on the screens, on their smartphones, on the video, on the computers, the video games, whatever and we need to bring something to them that's going to beat that. We're competing for their time and attention all of the time and going outdoors since we don't 
since we no longer exist outdoors for a bulk of our day, like we did back in the day when we were hunting and gathering, going outdoors now is usually a new, fresh environment for us. So it gives your kids a new, fresh experience. And I've used that as a place to rock climb, to hike, to backpack, do ocean swim, surfing, underwater work. I use it as a place to do kind of extreme things with my kids so that I can beat their friends online, you know, for their time and intention so that I can beat a video game and give them real experiences. And it also gives us the opportunity to bond and, and form bonds together that last a lifetime as well. Speaking of beating their friends as far as you're trying to compete for their time and competition in general, I'm that guy that when it comes to participation awards, I've been like, what the hell is this? What? Why is everybody getting a ribbon when all they did was showed up? I have to say, you, you've at least opened my mind enough to lean towards what your take is on participation awards because of the way that you addressed it. Sure. So I have a Belgian Malinois, which is a like a smaller, more aggressive version of a German Shepherd. These are the dogs they use in uh, the SEAL teams for working dogs. Um, I got this dog uh, to protect my family, but I decided I would train her myself because obviously there's behavior science and training involved, and I thought what a great context, great format for me to learn more about it. Inside of that, uh, there's a gentleman named B.F. Skinner that uh, you discover or uh, uncovered what's called operant conditioning and, and all kinds of behavior science that, want, that people have been using for, in animals for years. And now they're using it in athletes, they're using it in autistic kids, they're either using it in high-level executives. It's becoming more common now. Uh, the point I'm making here is you learn behavior science. You learn the four quadrants of behavior science. And, and the categor categorically speaking, there's reinforcement, and then there's punishment, what you would do to discourage a behavior. Once you understand behavior science, which I would say would be a minimal thing to understand as a, as a parent, as a leader, as anybody, because that's what we're doing. We're shaping behavior so that somebody can produce an end outcome. Once you understand it, you'll see what participation awards are for, right? My, my daughters, they were on the swim team. Um, there was a swim contest. Uh, you know, they went to a swim meet, their first one. And they got like fourth place and there was only like two other people swimming, but they were so far behind. It's like they got a fourth place participation award, but they came out of that meet. They got their ribbon and ran over to me just beaming happy as can be. Now, do you think that they wanted to participate again? Did they want to show up and do another meet after that? Oh, Absolutely. Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course they did. That's what a participation award is for. Like one of the things we teach to our corporate executives inside my leadership company is we teach perseverance. And the reason why it's so important is we can do just about anything as long as we keep trying. So participation awards are to encourage someone to participate. If you don't participate, you lose right away. Now, they get misused. They, these people don't understand behavior science and we have people out there coaching our sons and daughters in soccer, football, baseball, lacrosse, all over the place and these people don't know anything about behavior science and a lot of these coaches are wrecking kids um, because they're, they're breaking their motivation and breaking their confidence. Uh, so I believe as a parent it's important to understand this so we can counter some of that. But once you understand it, you don't misuse it. So you don't give an award every time someone shows up for the rest of the season, right? It's appropriate at the beginning, and then you don't stop rewarding the performers because you're afraid of hurting people's feelings. That's where these things go wrong, right? There's, there's people getting trophies for, you know, huge trophies for participating in a season of soccer. That's not correct. That, they're trying to use a participation award the wrong way. 
Um, and that's why people get so fired up about it. But if you understood participation awards, everybody would love them. That really does make sense the way you broke that down. And you had some other stuff in the book. And Men of Abundance, you have to go get this book. And we're going to talk about it later. And matter of fact, I'm going to have a link uh, to an Audible book in the show notes if you go to menofabundance.com. And you'll be able to search Eric and you'll find those show notes. Eric, what are one to three actionable steps that you can give to men of abundance that they can act on today? The first thing I would say is to become situationally aware. And what I mean by that is sometimes I'll be asked, hey, what's the parallel between SEALs and parents or being a father? And I'll explain like, well, they're the same thing. Like SEALs uh, gather information so they can produce situational awareness of their environment. Uh, they understand what their mission objective is and they assess it, prioritize and take action, which is the same thing a parent should do. So when, when I'm talking like what are the three action steps, I would say first is understand all of the elements of life. Understand what makes up a life, right? If you want to live an abundant life or if you want to be great at anything, you've got to master all the basics. And I'm talking like spirituality, money, family, helping others, right? Relationships, play, body. I mean the whole gamut. So the first thing I'd say is an action step is get aware of all that. What are the elements that actually make up your life? Assess them, prioritize them so that you can take action on them. Because too many people try to get really big at one thing without taking care of their base. That's why you can see very wealthy people, you know, fail and, and, and I mean, do the worst to themselves sometimes is because they're missing all the elements. And then the next thing I'd say is build a team around you, right? So that they can do the same. Right. It, if you look at life, if you, all those things I named off, money, body, spirituality, family, career, helping others, like all of the things that make up a life, you'll quickly find it'd be overwhelming. You'd quickly understand that it's not something that you can do by yourself. So the second actionable step would be to build that team around you. So become aware and build a team around you of other people who are into living a good life or an abundant life, however you want to say it. So that way you have support because the marketplace and people's opinions, it's always going to be driven by pop culture and pop culture is always going to be driven to go buy things online or buy things at the store. That's what they're doing. They don't care if you're living a good life. And then the third thing would be to access knowledge and information. You need to be studying every single day. It's amazing. Like people still haven't got that yet. It's out now. There's corporations won't even hire people who aren't in a regular practice of studying, but you need to study every single day. And, and reading Facebook is not studying. <laughs> people burn up all of their time. It's ridiculous. And all they're doing is consuming more pop culture and opinion. And it's, it, it's going to get amplified. That's all Facebook does. It's going to amplify pop culture and opinion. That's why it's all out there. So you need to be studying. You need to access a source of knowledge, something that you can trust, something with a proven history of performance, and study it and apply it to your life. Those things that you become aware of that you're going to lead other people in, you need to apply that every single day. So those would be the actionable steps. Actionable awesome. steps. Absolutely. What daily habits make the biggest impact in your life? So overall, and you'll hear me say this a lot, a lot, is to live a good life so that I can lead others to do the same. And that's, that's not, I'll give you a more specific daily habit, but that's what I'm looking to do every single day. I really watch like where I'm at. Am I living, if, am I living the life that I want for my kids, my sons, my daughters, and the people around me? Happy, healthy, successful. Am I doing those things? Now to do those things, I find that I need to do three things very, very consistently. One, I need back to the studying. I need to study every single day, again, because I have to access knowledge. We live in a knowledge-based world now, a knowledge-based economy. We're not out hunting and gathering anymore. We compete with knowledge, our ability to invent and design. So back to the studying. Um, I work out 
just about every day. Um, and I don't mean that like a cop out. I mean it like I don't need to work out every single day, but 75% of the week I need to be working out. Um, those, that's another one of my daily habits. And then for me, it's uh, also writing every day. So I write every single day uh, so that I can produce the content and take all the studying and the life experiences I have and turn it into something that other people can use. And that's something personal for me. But even if you're not a writer or on podcast or anything like this, you still have friends and family around you that you need to lead and writing and producing content and deep thought around all that is a big part of that so that you can think and help people through things. Well, I'll tell you, Raising Men is definitely a reread for me. I'm going to keep that one. I'm actually going to make sure I get the, the hard copy so that I can reference it easier. Um, but what book would you recommend to the, our abundant leaders and why? Uh, so I'll get a little spiritual here. I There's only been one book I've ever read, and then I just read again and again and again, and that's Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, and, and here's why. One is because he explains the difference between good and bad. Like you'll read this book and actually understand, yes, there is a good and there is a bad and there is something presiding over that, whether you're spiritual or not. Even if you don't, if someone's an atheist, that is their spirituality. They just believe not to believe, so they believe in something, right? So that has mm -hmm. been one of the most impactful books in my life, and it's one of the few books that I, I haven't been able to, I can't just read it and then go talk about it. I'm having to consume it over and over again, not because it's hard to understand, but it's so deep and it's hitting things at such a deep level uh, that I have to reread it over and over again. That's a big one. Do you know if that book's in audio? I do not know if it's in audio. I would think it is because um, C.S. Lewis is very big, although, but it's much older, so I'm not sure if they did that in audio. Yeah, I definitely recognize the name, but I'll look it up, and then if it is, whether it is or not, I'll go ahead and put it in the show notes and, uh, and anything else that we referenced in that. So we, I got one more question for you, Eric, and then we're going to go ahead and let you uh, share some parting guidance and any way that anybody can get a hold of you because I'm sure some people listening to this definitely want to find out more about you. So what does living a life of abundance mean to you? Uh, living a life of abundance to me is, and I'll be a little bit of a broken record here, but it is really truly caring for all of the elements of life and keeping and maintaining them. I have a philosophy called you know, being average. Uh, my life is in abundance when I don't try to take any of those elements and make them too big. Uh, it's in abundant when I keep them all in harmony. When, when nothing's too low or nothing's too high, then my life works out. And I'm happy, healthy. Things don't break down on me. None of those uncontrollable, unforeseen circumstances show up um, that I could have controlled. That's an abundance life to me. Excellent, man. It's been a pleasure. So give us a parting piece of guidance and how can we reach you? So parting piece of guidance is back to that living a good life so that you can lead others. I, I've seen too many guys uh, give me the like, hey, I'm just going to sacrifice myself so that my family's happy or I'm, I'm not going to make a lot of money so I can be home for my family. Uh, like what you were talking about, they try to live life a little bit too simply. Uh, and we do want to simplify things, uh, but we don't want to sacrifice ourselves because how are we going to teach our sons, our daughters, and people around us to live a good, happy, healthy, successful life if we ourselves can't do it? So my parting advice is always live a good life so that you can lead others to do the same. So it's kind of you're starting off selfish and then you're getting very altruistic so you can lead people um, there. And you can find that. And, and anything I do, I keep on my personal site. It's ericdavis215.com or it's www, whatever, but it's ericdavis215.com. And there I have links to my book and all the 
articles I write, everything to do with everything I got going on in this world can be found there, and that's a great access point uh, to keep up. Eric, it's been a pleasure having you on the show, and I look forward to connecting with you in the future and find out what else you're doing. Uh, Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure to be on as well. Awesome, brother. Take care. All right. Thank you. All right, men of abundance. I hope you got as much out of that conversation with Eric as I did. Now, the action step I would like for you to take today based off of this conversation is sit down and write down a plan of what you're going to do with your family over the next weekend or the weekend after that, but make it within the next two weeks and write it down. Make a plan. Even if it's just even if it's just to go to the park or go for a hike or go to the movies together, go have breakfast together, do something, go in the backyard, pitch a tent in the backyard, do something with your family that's out of the ordinary, something you haven't done in a long time. You know what your kids like to do. You know what your spouse likes to do. You know what your wife likes to do. Go do that. Find something they enjoy doing and certainly something you enjoy doing together. And get out there and write it down. Make a plan just like you would anything else. You make a plan at work. You'll make a plan for your career. You'll make a plan for everything else. Make a plan to spend time with your family. All right, that's all I have for you today. Now go out and spend some time with your family. Hug your kids. Hug your wife. And make it an abundant day. And don't forget to pay it forward. That's all for today, Abundance Leaders. For more about our guests and the powerful information we shared with you today, be sure to sign up for our mailing list at menofabundance.com. We appreciate your time and look forward to hanging out with you on our next episode. So until then, be sure to pay it forward and live your life of abundance.